From Double J, it's the Take 5 podcast. The people you love, play the songs they love and tell you why. Welcome back. I'm Zan Rowe and every week I invite someone great in to pick five songs around a particular theme. Music soundtracks our life and often triggers memories and moments that change the course of our lives for the better. I'm so excited for the Take 5 to return for another year and my wish list of guests is already getting pretty long. In fact, the co-host was clearly on my mind even while I took a little break over Christmas because I ended up doing a Take 5 anyway. That's what you're about to hear in this special bonus podcast episode, an incredible conversation with Simon Potts. So who is Simon Potts? He may not be a name that you recognise, but he's had a hand in so much of the music that we know. He began as a promotions guy pitching records to DJs. He'd signed some of the biggest bands of the 80s and rise to being head of artist and repertoire at labels in the US and UK. His stamp on music is immense. This is a guy who's worked with everyone from Joy Division to Patti Smith, The Cure and Duran Duran, Aretha Franklin and the Butthole Surfers. I mean, the list goes on and on. He retired from the music industry at the age of 40, moved to the beautiful Hawaiian island of Kauai and began a very different life, building a house with his own hands in Hanalei Bay on its north shore. And it was there that I found him. I booked the Elvis room in his guest house and decided to read the little about the host part of his website, and it was then that I knew I was in for some tales. I took a portable mic along, just in case, and sure enough, it was the right decision. I'll set the scene for you. It's a balmy winter's night in December. It never really gets cold in Hawaii, so just think humidity, light rain falling outside, you might be able to hear it just through the screen door. Simon and I have cracked a couple of local craft beers. We're on his vintage couch as the dusk falls. And he hasn't done any kind of interview like this in more than 20 years. But you won't even be able to tell. This is a guy you know who has a thousand more stories to share. The theme I gave him? The five songs that changed his life. Half an hour after I asked him if he was keen to do this, he actually sent me a list of 10 songs. I mean, he could have picked 100. So where do you begin with a guy like Simon? Well, at the beginning. How did a kid from Newcastle, who grew up in a boarding school in India, get his foot in the door of the music industry? Well, my best friend Andy Worrell was Richard Branson's guy to open up the first megastore. In London, in fact. So after that experience, he was asked to open up the the megastore in Newcastle. Before the London megastore was um, was opened, the both of us moved to Manchester from Newcastle. He to be manager of Manchester Lever Street uh, branch of Virgin, and I was basically just a helper in the store. At that point in our lives, we met a guy called Tony Wilson. He came into the store. Everybody came into Virgin Records, whether they were trying to score a lump of hash or they were trying to buy the, <laughs> <laughs> or they were trying to buy the latest Genesis record or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. Anything that you needed, you went to Virgin. You went to Virgin for anything <laughs> that you needed. So Tony would come by in his patched jeans, and that's the guy that we knew. And then during the day, one day, I remember Tony came by in his suit. And I was like, what the hell is Tony Tony wearing? So it turns out he was working at Granada TV then. Actually, it was through Tony. I went and saw Bob Marley's first tour of Britain was around that time, burning tour. And Tony got us tickets, me and Andy. 
we ended up about whew, 10 feet in front of Bob Marley in the I-3s. Wow. It was one of the most astonishing gigs I've ever seen. And of course, I was discovering Bob at that time. And there I was in front of him. And of course, in retrospect, what a great time to be there. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Tony's related to the first choice that you've made in your Take 5. We're wandering through the songs that changed your life. And the first choice is from Joy Division, Love Will Tear Us Apart. Mm. Was Tony your housemate? Did you tell me that? Well, yeah, we all kind of lived together in a house in Marple, just outside of Manchester. It's a long time ago. I think Tony lived there some of the time. (laughs) (laughs) It was a transient place. (laughs) People came and went. but, but, But Tony, I think, had gotten married at that point when the Joy Division record came around. And he was living close by to us in Marple. He would just come by from time to time. Yeah, he was a, a bit, very colourful character in, in Manchester and um, obviously later, a few years later, he started Factory Records. And uh, I, at that point, had become a promotion man. My first, after, after being in retail, I'd found myself getting a job selling um, records around the north of England in a van where I had to carry stock. And then six months into that job, and my friend Andy again from Virgin Records told me that a salesman for Anchor Records was about to give up his job. And that was just a job where he carried an order pad and samples and sold in the records for the month. So I, I got that job, and that was Anchor Records was the English distributor for ABC America, ABC Dunhill Records. So the first month I sold in Steely Dan's Asia album, Poco's Legend, B.B. King and Jimmy Buffett's Cheeseburger in Paradise album. That was an amazing experience because being thrust into the sales side of the music industry, I always assumed that Steely Dan sold hundreds of thousands of records. But then when I was wandering around the north of England taking orders, I couldn't believe that people would just take ones and twos of Asia, which at that point was their fifth album. And so it was a rude awakening to find out how few records actually sold, which, of course, was an education for later in my life. So I became, after that sales job, a promotion man for Arista in London, and that job was going to Radio 1 and trying to get the DJs to play your records. That was a distressing business, too, to learn the true reality of that, to find out that the majority of DJs weren't that interested in the music. They were interested in opening supermarkets or whatever else they did to make money on the side. But there was a few exceptions. There was a guy called John Peel. John Peel was um, now become a very famous, legendary DJ from England, and he broke many bands. He broke bands in the 70s from you know, Rod Stewart, The Faces, I remember, growing up as a child, listening to his Perfume Garden radio show, with a transistor radio under my pillow. <laughs> He'd play Rod Stewart and The Faces and the Incredible String Band. and We call that underground music back then. Mm. Anyway, John became very friendly with me because on the side I would work a few other records for my friends. And, and Tony Wilson and now had started Factory Records, and the first album he'd put out was a, a record with a sandpaper sleeve. It was the Duruti column, a guy called Vinnie Riley, a guitarist. And uh, it was a sandpaper sleeve, and the idea was... Tony was a pretty radical character. He, he, his, uh, his idea was the sandpaper sleeve would destroy every other record in your record collection. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what a move. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. <laughs> He had another record that he was releasing at the same time, which is the first Joy Division record. And I took both of those records to many DJs at Radio 1, but John Peel was the only one that really was interested. So he started playing Joy Division on the, ra- on the radio. So because I had, if you like, credibility with John, he listened to me when I brought him something that was good. Like a Patty Sm- I promoted Patti Smith, I promoted Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Simple Minds back then. So I had a, a, a good rapport with John. Did you ever see Joy Division live? I saw them in Strawberry Sound making the record with Martin Hannett. Kind of an introvert character, Ian Curtis. Yeah. I don't remember much more, actually. It was a long time ago. It was a very big record. You promoted it. Tony Wilson didn't destroy them, all the records that they made, despite the sandpaper sleeves that he had with his other records. And this is your first choice. Simon Potts is taking five. This is Joy Division. Love will tear us apart. Hey, this is Simon Potts, and I'm taking five. We kicked off with Love Will Tear Us Apart from Joy Division and right there, the beat, Mirror in the Bathroom. The man who signed that band is with us to take five. On the shores of Hanalei Bay, where Simon Potts calls home and has done for quite a while, but for a long period, lived a very different life, promoting records, uh, doing A&R, living all over the world really and adventuring and making a lot of musical dreams come true, and I'm sure many of his own. And The Beat were one of those very early bands that you really backed and you could call your own, weren't they? Yeah. Well, as I'd previously said, I I had um, become friendly with John Peel at Radio 1, and during the transition of me leaving the promotion department and becoming a full-time A&R man, he recommended that I go and see this band, The Beat. And um, he said that he'd played a gig the night before and... They were so good, he'd asked them to just go on again and play twice instead of him spinning his records. Was that often done? Like, did, I can't imagine these days someone just saying, hey, can you just play another set after you've already done that? Was that a weird thing? Or if Peel said it, it was green light? Yeah, it was a green light if Peel yeah. said it, I think. Um, you know, he was a legend in my lifetime, his lifetime, and everybody's lifetime in England. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I went up to see the band. Um, I didn't really know what an a man did at all. I just hung at the back of the hall and watched them, thought they were great. The audience was fantastic, really responded to them. So eventually I I worked my way backstage and met the manager, Mick Hancock. And I met the band and I just talked to them about life in general, said that I worked for Arista Records and I'd like to sign them to the record label. (laughs) 
I didn't know what that entailed <laughs> <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Was this a fake it till you make it moment for you? Yeah, yeah, very much. And um, But I knew that persistence would pay off. So I, I was at every gig from there on in and I found out wherever they were going to play around the north of England and I would be there, whether it be some dodgy club in Dewsbury, Yorkshire or some dive bar in Liverpool. I was the persistent one. There was other A&R men that came and went and we had competition from, of course, Two-Tone wanted to put out their first record mm. and they did put out their first record, uh, Tears of a Clown. But we actually signed the band before that record had come out. So our promotion department had Arista actually worked that record instead of Chrysalis, who were actually very pissed off that we got the group. Mirror in the Bathroom was the song when I saw them live that I thought would be the crossover, if there was such a thing, a crossover single. And uh, certainly that's the, the song that has tried the test of time. That was a huge hit at the time and still to this day, though, well, wasn't it? It was a number four record in England and it happened in a couple of countries of Europe, but it never happened in America. That The beat had been discovered in retrospect as far as America's concerned. Mm. I think in Australia we had a hit with it, but it wasn't a huge international hit. I think that in Australia it was played on Countdown, which is the big TV show, and also Triple J yeah, backed Molly it a lot. Meldrum. He, Molly Meldrum liked a lot of my bands at that era, actually. And later in life, I met that guy. He was an interesting man, that's for sure. <laughs> I went to a few parties at his place in, in, in uh, Melbourne. This cowboy hat on at all times. But anyway, we, we digress. The Beats were my first band, and... Um, Changed my life in that respect. Uh, it wasn't soon after that that I became head of A&R. I, I ran into a band called the Stray Cats after that, signed them, and they actually were a worldwide hit. They ended up making me head of A&R after that. You have this proven track record that pushes you into this position where you go from promotions man to A&R. Can you describe the feeling that you have when you see a band and you think, they've got it, I'm going to back these guys, all these girls? Is there a magic or is it, is it a tangible thing? It's not really a tangible thing. I mean, you you follow your instinct. What what excites you, you think is going to excite somebody else. I always look for a d distinctive voice and a song that I thought could cross over, but also a live performer in many cases. The Stray Cats was about live performance. I mean, I didn't know if they were going to have a hit or not, quite frankly, but they were so exciting live mm. that I had to go for it. With, with each artist, it's a different thing. And, and, and by the way, you then question yourself 15 times before you do the deal. <laughs> number of times you question yourself about it all. But I think, as I look back, naivete was a very good thing for me. How so? Not knowing the expense involved in making a record. <laughs> as I rose through the ranks and became head of Capital Worldwide and knew the financial implication of it all. That was a bit frightening. Did you feel guilty for all the decisions you'd made in your early years? <laughs> <laughs> all care, no responsibility at that point. Yeah. I guess timing is a really big thing with music too, trends, but also culturally what, what's happening at the time. And yeah. the beat very much rose in a period yes. in the UK where there was uh, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of kind of 
social disruption. People were angry. People were wanting to fight back. Can you remember that time and, oh, yeah. and the bands that were coming around in, the, in that period? Oh, yeah. It was Thatcher's Britain, you know. It was the year of the Pistols, obviously, and the Clash and the Jam. And, and uh, it was the English punk period. And every punk concert you went to, they were playing reggae records prior to the band going on. Mm. And that created the the scar scene that the the beat came from in England, the specials, the, the madness, and the beat being the, the preeminent ones. There was other bands called the Body Snatchers and this, that, and the other. But uh, they were the three that really came out of that. England, as you know, is very trend-orientated. And yes, you have to pick a band that's going to be fashionable for the time, so that is that comes into the decision process too, as much as the song and the performance and the vocalist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. We're here with Simon Potts in Hawaii. I'm working on my holiday, yes, but yeah. it's because I couldn't resist the chance to speak with this man who's really uh, had a hand in so many of the bands and the songs that we've loved over the years. And we're going to leap from the beat to 1985 and a little-known band called Simply Red. When I met you a couple of days ago you and I asked you where the beach was, you pointed to, uh, to, to the door, out the door and said, just out there, that's where I made the deal with Simply Red, which made me want to... <laughs> no? no? That was the Thompson Twins. Oh, that was the Thompson Twins. Listen to the demo tape across the road. I, I, I'd, come, I'd found Kauai in 1981 and it became my escape from the music business but I would come here with a bag of tapes and an empty head and and try and figure it out and I I listened to the the Thompson Twins demos on the beach across the street and decided that we would go ahead and make a record with them skipping forward to Simply Red from the Thompson Twins that was the time when I was starting to get phone calls from American record companies and one in particular Bob Krasnow at Electra Records <laughs> called me up and said, hey, man, I want to make you a rich man. <laughs> <laughs> Such a music industry thing to say. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it certainly was. <laughs> and um, he was a character of the finest order. I mean, he was the most astonishing man that I ever worked for in my career, actually. He had worked with James Brown. He had a scar on his chin that James had put him over a flight case once and he'd signed Captain Beefheart and Tim Buckley. I mean, astonishing artists. Mm. So I was very drawn to Bob, and especially when he told me he was going to make me rich. So he'd come to England and said, and said that, and eventually I became head of Electra Records Europe, and I had a separate office from Warner, WEA Europe, a WEA UK, should I say. And um, the first band that I signed there, actually within the first month of the company starting, was a band called Simply Red, again out of Manchester. In the transition period of leaving Arista and starting Electra, I'd gone up to Manchester to see Simply Red perform. I was just amazed. He was like an uncaged animal on stage. I mean, I, he wasn't a particularly attractive-looking man at the time. Um, but I was badgered by his manager, Elliot Rashman. Elliot Rashman had written me a letter saying he wanted to be the first band signed to Electra UK. Well, it turned out he, they were. Anyway, so I, uh, so I went north and decided to sign them. They eventually decided to sign to us. We, we had some competition. Primarily, I remember Dave Robinson from Stiff climbing through 
windows to come into a gig to try and get into the dressing room. <laughs> Dave was always around. Dave was a big competitor back then um, and a wonderful man. Anyway, we signed Simply Red and had a couple of hits with uh, Simply Red in Europe. Um, Money's Too Tight to Mention, which was a cover of a Valentine Brothers record and uh, Come to My Aid. And they were hits in Italy and Holland and England we just felt we were starting to get the whole thing going. And we'd, we were about to come out with a new album and a single re- preceding it called Holding Back the Years. And I was called to New York. But I had a call at the um, hotel for when I get there. And it was Bob Krasnow saying, Hey, Simon, hey, man, I want to have, have dinner with you. So anyway, my flight had arrived late, so he, he couldn't have dinner with me. He, he called it off and said, let's have breakfast instead. So at breakfast the next morning, he said, listen, I'm in trouble, man. We're not making any money. Now, he'd started Electra Records America three years prior. You know, it had been a very successful label of the 70s. It had the Eagles, the Doors, Queen, the Cars. Anyway, bands that had been signed in the 70s, but nothing new that was on the cutting edge that he was supposed to be doing to mm. Electra. He was supposed to bring Electra Records into the 80s. Mm. And nothing had broken. Anyway, so he was in trouble with his bosses. So he said to me, Simon, I have to reduce your operation. In England, I want you to move into WEA UK's office with just you and your secretary. And, um, hey, man, when, when we get it together, we'll reopen the offices. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed. They hate me at WEA UK. I'd been independent of them. I didn't have to report to the English company. I was reporting direct to America. They're going to kill me, I thought to myself. So in my madness, and the next morning I ended up resigning. I resigned. Bob said he'd take care of me and paid me off. He paid me off for like 100 grand or something, which was a lot of money back then. And, um, but I said to him, you know, part of the deal, Bob, is I'd like, you know, I took seven people with me from Arista Records, and um, I'd like you to pay them off three months' salary. And he said, yeah, no problem, no problem. So, of course, I get back to England and the financial guy comes in and has amnesia. <laughs> and um, anyway, I was, a, you know, I was an arrogant young thing and I had a royalty program with Electra Records where I had the difference between what I signed the artist for and a certain percentage. And I think on, a, on Simply Red, I was on about 3%. And... Uh, so I told the fin- uh, in exchange for paying all my staff off three months' salary, I told the f- chief financial officer he could shove his f***ing royalties where the sun don't shine, <laughs> but pay my staff off. And they did. They paid the staff off, and I ended up losing out on a million or so. <laughs> oh, no! You fell on your sword. You're good boss, though. Yeah, I fell on my sword. Yeah, yeah. It was the right, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And I have no regrets because from Simply Red, I travelled around the world. The record ended up by default going to number one almost everywhere. I was free of contract and I got a fantastic deal from Capital out of it. So that's the way I look at it. I got paid off by getting a deal at Capital Records. And here's the song that made it all happen. It is holding back the years. Still to this day, one of the biggest hits for Simply Red. Simon Potts is taking five of this here on Double J.
Hey, this is Simon Potts, and I'm taking five with Zan. It's Duran Duran, Ordinary Worlds, big comeback single from 1993 from them. And just before that, all the way back to 1985, we heard Holding Back the Years from Simply Red, a man who's had a hand in both of those songs. And all the tunes you're hearing over the last little while is Simon Potts. He's taking five. We are wandering through the songs that changed his life. And he indeed has had quite the life. We're here in Hawaii, in Hanalei Bay, beautiful Hanalei Bay, where I'm a guest at his beautiful guest house. And I brought a little flash mic with me once I read the About the Owner bit on his website and realised that he had quite the tale to tell, which he does. Uh, Duran Duran, what a beautiful band this was. And this year that they came back, 1993, things had been a little bit quiet for them, but this really was a massive comeback single for them, wasn't it? Ordinary yeah, World. Yes, it, it, it certainly was. And it couldn't have happened to nicer people. i got to say, they were the, really one of the nicest bands I've ever worked with. Mm. Just to cut to the chase on on this record, um, as you say, Duran Duran had been through some lean years. Um, they hadn't had a hit in a, a number of albums. And in the UK, particularly where it's fashion conscious, they weren't very confident. They were asking the Americans to take the lead. I was now head of Capitol Records in America, in Hollywood. I was head of Capitol Records A&R department worldwide. So I was summoned to the UK into a little terraced house in Fulham where, believe it or not, they were recording an album in that, in that little terraced house. And um, I was hustled by a guy called Warren. Warren had been, become the new guitarist. He was in Missing Persons, another band that used to be on Capitol prior to me getting there. And he was a true hustler. Anyway, he, he called me and anyway, enticed me down and I, of course, went down. I was very happy to go down. But, no, didn't have the greatest of expectations, I have to tell you. But anyway, I sat in the, uh, in the living room. I think they were using the kitchen to record it. <laughs> and there was part of the living room being used as a vocal booth. And um, they had the backing track down for Ordinary World already. And uh, Simon was going to, strangely enough, do the vocals that night. So I sat there and watched Simon record the vocals for Ordinary World. And I got to tell you, hairs on my back. I was like, "Oh my god, this is an absolute smash! Is this really is this really happening?" Because I had no expectations. The funny, the funniest thing about that was that Simon Le Bon didn't like his vocals, so he ended up taking off his pants. <laughs> <laughs> and he recorded those vocals, the, the vocal that you that you're about to hear, <laughs> with his underpants on. It wasn't a pretty sight. <laughs> But, um, yeah, when I heard that vocal go down, I knew that that record was, my God, it must be a hit, for Christ's sake. Surely that's a hit. How often have you been part of that, been in the room when these songs are recorded? Are you that hands-on when you're signing a band? You tend to go to the recording studio for the 
critical parts of I, that was just pure luck that I walked in on the vocal I got invited that night mm. but in many cases you know you avoid going when the producer calls and says you've got the drum tracks down you know because once you've heard a drum track once or twice <laughs> you, you don't poor want to, drummers you, you want it yeah well you know, it's very important to get it right <laughs> but um, you want to be there when at least a guide vocal is being put down yeah. So, yeah, I tended to go into the studio around that time. And sometimes I had something to add. Sometimes I didn't. I remember on Holding Back the Years, I said, I said to Stu- Stuart Levine, who was the producer on that record, I said, Stuart, it needs something right in the middle there. And he came up with this muted trumpet solo, mm. which, if you listen to that record, it makes that record. So sometimes you have a feeling about something being needed or sometimes you feel like it needs an edit. You can contribute sometimes. Before we jump into your final choice, I just want to ask you, because you've been living in Hawaii for a number of years now and you haven't been working in the industry, you were able to retire quite young, really, and live the life of your own choosing. Do you still feel that hunger? Do you still chase what music is around now? Do you still sort of see what's what's coming up and trends that are happening? Or are you, are you happy just to sort of settle with the, the music of the period where you were working in the industry? No, I still I still um, listen to lots of new new music coming along. I, I'm in love with Scissor right now, actually. Amazing record. Amazing. You love Scissor. Yeah, I love Scissor's record. I love the Rag and Bone Man record. I love uh, Lana Del Rey's record. I love The Weeknd. I love Drake. I love... You're up with it. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> I love the Black Keys. Do you still find yourself listening out at certain elements of song and thinking, oh, I would have done that differently? I would have told the them record? to do that. Yeah. No. Or do you, do you, are you able to switch to, I, off? No, I, I don't think about that anymore. That's good. No. <laughs> There was a time I couldn't listen to a record without being critical about the structure. Mm. Now I just accept it that I'm, you know, was in the business 20 years ago. And I'm just enjoying music for what it is. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. One final choice we have. We're going to 1993. Um, st- same year that Duran Duran song, but from a different side of the pond. A little band called Radiohead and their debut single, Creep which still to this day, whenever they play live, people lose their heads about it. Mm. What was your role in Radiohead's story? Well, Radiohead was signed to EMI UK, to mm. Parlophone by a guy called Nick Gatfield, and they were signed on a two-EP two deal. I think the first one was called High and Dry. Oh. And the second one had Creep on it. And I think it got to 163 in the charts, somewhere like that in the UK. And they were having to pick up an option. And obviously that it sold nothing. I was now head of A&R in America for Capitol Records, which was EMI's subsidiary over on that side of the pond. Nick Gatfield, when I was in the UK, asked me to come and see Radiohead with him. And I remember driving down to Brighton University to see them with him. There was just something about him. I mean, the guy's voice, obviously Tom's, Tom's voice was really special. Mm. i got to tell you, I didn't know that they were going about to become the new Pink Floyd. <laughs> but there was something about them, and I went, yeah, we'll, we'll part finance this. So we ended up picking up the option for the first album, Pablo Honey. Mm. Nick oversaw the recording of it, 
And I thought Creep would be an American alternative hit. You know, I thought alternative radio would, would go for it, but I didn't see pop radio going for it. I couldn't imagine... You know, I always used to think about a hit record in terms of The Milkman. Does The Milkman walk down the garden path singing the song? And I just couldn't see The Milkman singing, I'm a, I'm a creep, I'm so f***ing special. <laughs> and, but I was proven wrong. It became a hit. Well, they had to change the lyrics. They had to uh, yeah. censor the, yeah. the F-bomb for America. Those days, back then, we had, to do, we, had to change a lot. we had to change a lot of lyrics. Yeah, it turned out to be a big hit. Unfortunately, I wasn't at Capitol Records to enjoy the success of that group. I had left at the age of 40. I had, a new guy had come into town, and um, I didn't suit his, his vision of everything. So I was booted out high and dry, actually. But at that point, I'd... My mum had taught me well. I'd saved half my money. So I had some f*** you money. (laughs) (laughs) So I came to Hawaii. I'd bought some land here in in my late 30s, and I went to work on it physically. I was heartbroken about losing that job at the time, quite frankly. But I now tell everybody I got fired for signing Radiohead, (laughs) (laughs) which turned out to be a pretty big band. (laughs) But my life really has improved. I mean, you know, at that age... My health was not great. I smoked cigarettes. I had sometimes two burning in the same ashtray. I was paid to party. I ate spaghetti bolognese at two o'clock in the morning. My cholesterol level was through the roof. My doctor said, you've got to do something about it, Simon. So I did. I came, worked physically on my land, took up yoga and Pilates here in Hawaii. Went back briefly to work for Chris Blackwell for a year. Island Records, but it was the death throes of that record company. It was the death throes of the industry, actually. Downloading was coming in. Sales were just going through the floor. And so Chris resigned one day. I resigned the next day, and that was the last day I ever worked in the music business. That was 1998. I came here to Hawaii, and life has been sweet ever since. It feels like time and place has been pretty good to you in your lifetime. Yeah, luck has been a big part of my life, I would say. Um, I've been lucky to be in the right place at the right time a number of times and um, hope it continues. Simon, it's been great to meet you. Thank you for taking five with me. Thank you very much for finding my place and enjoying the Handley Surfboard House. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I was special You're so very special But I'm a creep Radiohead with Creep, winding up what was a gift of a conversation with Simon Potts, music biz legend who these days lives the sweet life on an island in Hawaii. What a joy to spend some time with him and in Hanalei Bay talking about music. If you're new to the Take 5, dive back into some of the other episodes that have already been. You'll hear Paul McCartney open his songbook, Quentin Tarantino's music supervisor, Mary Ramos, and David Byrne and St Vincent co-host with the songs that bring them together. Tap subscribe and you'll never miss these wonderful conversations every week about music from some of the best in the biz. And I'll catch you next time.
Hello, this is Becky Lucas. Hey, this is Nick Murphy. I'm Rose Matafeo. I'm Taken 5. Hey, this is Sid. Hey, this is Matt. We're from the internet. Hi, guys. Kate McCarthy from the Brisbane Lions. What's up? This is Joyride, and I'm Taking 5. Hey, this is Julia Jacqueline. This is Laura Jane Grace from Against Me, and I'm Taking 5 with Sam. The Take 5 Podcast. The people you love play five songs they love and tell you why. 